Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you're coming from. Thanks for joining. I am super excited to be back with my next episode of Rewarding Conversations, as I am here with Dr. Kaz. Now, you will hear me reference her throughout this podcast as Kaz, Dr. Kaz, because that is how I knew her. Uh, but this is Michelle Lee Cosimore, um, Dr. Michelle Lee Cosimore, I should say. So thank you so much for joining today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Um, just to let the audience out there know, uh, this is a really kind of personal one for me because Kaz uh, was an advisor and mentor of mine when I was in college. Um, she is somebody that I learned a lot from, that I looked up to, and that I still do. Um, and we kind of recently reconnected by coming back and helping to be a part of a panel and committee of something that I did when I was in college, which is uh, basically in order to graduate um, from the college uh, in the major of sociology, which I studied, which is what Kaz teaches. Well, one of the many things. Uh, there's a research methods and stats or statistical analysis class that you take uh, where you write a really long paper. It's over the course of like a huge year and you have to do research and you have to defend it and go to a conference. And it was really scary for me, but it was a really big deal for me. And it, it really helped to shape me in terms of public speaking skills, confidence, research, importance of writing. I mean, it's just a phenomenal kind of entire year of study. Um, so I, I knew cause through that and that's what kind of really shaped me. So I really couldn't think of a better person to have come on right before the holidays and everything, uh, than cause, because you are honestly somebody that really like, when I think back of my four year education, my undergraduate, the first thing I think of is you to be perfectly frank. Um, because you, you are somebody that cares very deeply. You work really hard with the students late nights. You know, you are always there to answer questions. Um, you were just somebody, you believed in us, um, and I think that shows because when we did uh, the kind of coming back to be a part of the the research papers and everything, uh, just like a month or so ago, whenever it was, there was graduates that graduated around me later than me, like, and people coming back and everybody was kind of saying the same thing. Like they come back because of how they felt when they did this. So uh, that's my super long intro of you. Dr. Kaz has taught so many classes, been a part of committees once countless awards you've been editor of things like you you just you're super super involved so i'm appreciative that you took your time to to do this thank you oh you're quite welcome i'm on break now so all is good oh all yeah bring it on right <laughs> so so you submitted your your grades and everything for your students right so you're good to go yeah i'm good this, That's is, a, awesome. this is the fun time of yeah. you know not that teaching isn't fun i don't want to suggest that in fact different kinds yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I absolutely love teaching. And, and one of the things I said is that when teaching is no longer fun for me, yeah. and I wouldn't say it has to be fun every day. There are days, right? We all have days in our jobs. Mm -hmm. But when the majority of my time starts to swing to no longer being fun, that I don't enjoy my time in the classroom and, and have fun in the classroom, then it's time for me to, to find another career. Yeah, for sure. I, I feel that for sure. Actually, quite a bit recently. I feel that. Um, so, so that's a whole different topic of conversation. But uh, no, I've really grown to love doing this podcasting and making films and things like that. It's it's become my true passion. It's something that I really love. I've gotten to meet so many incredible humans just through doing this and connecting with people, you know, all over the country internationally. And it's just been the most amazing experience for me. Um, so just to give a little bit of backstory about you, so everybody knows, uh, you got your undergraduate degree from Elizabethtown College, and then you got your master's and your PhD from Penn State. Um, and then you decided to, you know, you, you wanted to come back and teach, and then you kind of went, went down your journey. But I, I'm curious, what got you interested in your areas of study, like your master's and your PhD and what you got your degrees and everything? What got you interested in those fields in particular? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting story because um, like like most college students, well, first of all, let me just tell you that uh, I come from a family that was very well educated. So I am not a first generation you know, college student. My mother had a master's degree that she worked on at night going to Kane College, which I know that it's not called Kane College anymore, but she would go to school at night to get her master's degree. And I grew up watching her do that. My dad had a master's degree um, and she, my mom's in education. She was a K through eight um, vice principal for a while. She Before that, she was a uh, sixth grade teacher. So, you know, I grew up going in, in the classroom with her. And actually, my nickname, Cause, came from my mother. So, uh, my mother was very dedicated to her students. She was in a very underserved school district in New Jersey. I know you're from New Jersey too. So, Jersey. she's in an underserved uh, school district in New Jersey. 
And she would often um, buy extra school supplies for her students and stock her, her you know, cabinets and her closets. Um, she would buy extra hats and gloves and mittens to have for the kids that didn't have them. She was always checking in on students that uh, didn't seem right or something seemed to be off at home. Uh, she would stay late. She would leave early. She would spend summers redoing her classroom. She was a very dedicated teacher. And I remember hearing the students refer to themselves as Cause's kids. <laughs> like, so her classes were, she was the original, like, cause. Like, so they would refer to my mother as Cause's kids. And I, I thought that affection that they had for her, this mentoring role, this close um, relationship-focused learning that she provided was something that I was influenced by, but I did not want to teach. So coming into college, okay. I was like, that's great, mom. You do you, you do that, but... Uh, that's great for you, but pass. <laughs> I don't think I want to do that. It's a lot of time. I'm going to yeah. do something different. I was really on the kick then when I came to... Well, I didn't want to go to college. I was like... That's, really? You know, it was always expected. It was something that like, well, which college are you going to choose? Not do you want to go to college? So yeah. while I did really well academically in high school, um, I was sort of resentful of the fact that I, I didn't have a choice, that I felt like it was just expected of me. And so um, I kind of drug my feet. And the way my parents got me to go check out colleges was by offering to buy me a sweatshirt from every college that I went to see. Enticing. Ironically though, Etown was not on their list. So they had Albright and Lafayette College and Fairfield University. Um, they wanted me to check out Princeton and Etown was not in Gettysburg, was not on their list, but I kept getting mailings from Elizabethtown College. And so one day I was like, well, on our way to Gettysburg College, can we just stop at Etown? And they were like, yeah, I don't know that school, but it's on our way, so we can stop there. And uh, the minute I stepped on campus, I was like, I don't know, this just feels right. Uh, they gave me a carrot cake, and I was like, what is this? They carrot cake. Carrot cake? Um, and just the way that the, the tour guides talked about the school, uh, the relationship center learning, I think, again, really connect. Like, I just felt like they were being honest and all the other tours I went on, I felt like sometimes, you know, it could be a little yeah, like rehearsed. And I, I really felt like it wasn't at E-Town. So I came back for an overnight stay and I decided to come to E-Town. Um, I must say, though, I came in as English lit. I love reading. I love literature. I love writing. Um, so I came in English lit thinking that I would be pre-law English lit defense attorney. That's uh, how I came into school, thinking that was the road right. I was going to take. Because in my household with my parents, it was like doctor, lawyer, you know, doctor meaning medical doctor, yeah. lawyer. Those were the, the yeah. aspirant occupations. And so I was like, okay, well, if I got to choose between those, I think I'll choose uh, to be a defense attorney. But then I realized at some point my first semester that being a defense attorney meant that I might have to actually defend people who I knew were guilty of the crimes they committed. Yeah, it's no good. And it was a moral conscience kind of thing. I didn't think I could do it. At the same time, I had a sociology professor that was a retired Baptist minister, uh, Dr. Caleb Rosado. And um, I loved going to his class, like absolutely loved it. But the first paper I got back, and keep in mind, I told you I did really well in high school and I didn't have to put much effort into it. So uh, when I got my first paper back on the sociological imagination and using the sociological imagination to explain why I chose Elizabethtown College and I saw my grade and it was a C, I was like, what is this? This I don't is not get correct. A C <laughs> in writing. What do you mean I missed the whole point of it? So I went and talked to him during his office hours and I was like, I don't understand. And he's like, you just don't, you didn't seem to get the sociological imagination. I want you to go back and I want you to look over it and then try it again. And I was like, you want me to rewrite this? Huh. And he's like, yes, I'd like you to look over it again. Okay. And so I kept going back to his class and I found his class was pushing me harder than I think I'd ever been pushed before to see things from outside of myself. And then I realized once I got the sociological imagination, 
which is understanding how social forces impact individual behavior. Hmm. I couldn't not see it that way again. Yeah. I couldn't see the world any differently. So I decided to take his class again, another class with him, because I really enjoyed his classes, which often happens, right? People continue to take courses. So my second semester, I signed up for social theory, not knowing that at the time, social theory was a senior level major sociology major class. And I was a first year student. So I walk in the first day and he hands out the syllabus and I look around the room and it's like 12 upper class sociology majors, like seniors. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. I'm not even a minor. I'm just doing this as an elective. I don't think so. So I uh, went back to my dorm and I talked to my peers, you know, the people on my floor and they said, oh, just go get the withdrawal form and just take it over to his office hours and he'll sign it for you. You can just drop that class. I was like, okay, no problem. So I go over to his office, go into his office, and I say, um, I'd like to drop your class. And he's like, no. <laughs> Told you like, no. What? I think that's what I said. Like, what? I said, you know, you don't understand. I talked to my friends, and they said all I have to do is bring this form to you. And that you would sign it because I'm not a minor. I'm not a major. I'm a first year student. And this is an upper level course. And it was my mistake. I take responsibility for it. I shouldn't have signed up for this class. And he's like, no, no. See, you've never been pushed really hard. And so at this point, I think it's really important that you stay in this class. So go to the library. Get Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that I have on reserve. Read the book like you're assigned to and write the five-page paper by the end of the week, and I'll see you next class. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Like, and if you know E-Town, which you do, yeah. that was unusual, right? Yeah. So I said, fine. And I was mad, right? I was mad, and I crossed my arms, and I kind of like stomped out the door because I was, you know, 18 years old. And uh, so then I'm like, fine. He wants me to stay in this class? I'll stay in this class. I'm going to talk every class and I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to get straight A's. And that's what I needed though at that time. Like I really needed to be pushed like that. And so uh, at the end of the class, I remember I was, and I did, I, you know, I I got, I got A's in that class. Right. And uh, when I, and it was my first theory class, taken lots of theory classes since love theory. Um, and so I, I left the class and as I was leaving, he said, um, I have a prophecy for you. This is your calling. I remember his exact words, like sociology is your calling. And by the time you are a junior, you will be a sociology major and you will go on to graduate school and get your PhD in sociology. And I laughed. I laughed because I was like, I am an English lit major. I am a pre-law. I am going to go to law school. This, I just laughed. Uh, He eventually, he left the institution at that time, but I continued to take sociology classes. And by the time I was a junior, I was a double major. And of course, as you know, I went on to get a PhD in sociology. So that's my story about how I got into sociology, kind of kicking and screaming the whole way. You know, I was a little nervous to tell my parents. I didn't change my major, but I did change my direction. So I kept English literature as my major, my first major. And it was always one of my first loves. But um, I did, in fact, you know, add a sociology major. And it was after the Mid-Atlantic Undergraduate Social Research Conference. So I came back from that conference because I added a minor first. So sociology became my minor first. And I had to take research methods and statistical analysis for my minor at the time, which I was also very mad about with Dr. Don Crable, who became another fabulous mentor of mine. And uh, I ended up taking those classes with him, kind of kicking and screaming the whole time. But then I became a teaching assistant for him. I loved being a teaching assistant. And that was my first time realizing I had a gift for teaching and that I really loved watching people understand material or gain confidence. And so I became a teaching assistant, became a research assistant for for Dr. Crable, and then um, decided that that was my calling. But I remember coming off the bus after the Mid-Atlantic Undergraduate Social Research Conference, or rather van, Dr. Crable was driving the van. 
And I remember coming off the van in the founder's parking lot and just feeling like I could like, it was like, you know, they say on cloud nine, right? Like I was just like dancing around the parking lot. Like this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to do conferences and presentations and research and teaching. And I had found my calling or so I thought, like, I really felt like, yeah. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was nervous as anything going there. I remember feeling in the van like I was going to throw up. (laughs) But afterwards, it was such a remarkable transition and just feeling of lightness and just like you're on the right path. And so um, that the next day I went in and changed my and added a major to sociology. So there's a lot of interesting things about that. Um, Like, first off, I went to that same conference. Um, years later I presented that at a conference I had all those nerves you took us to that conference and Mm -hmm. presented and E-Town has historically always done very well at those conferences Um, and it was something that I was incredibly proud of and I remember when I was finished that when I was finished the defense which is like the first half of the of the class if you will as two classes but it's like the first half I remember the defense was cool and I wasn't nervous about that because it was in front of you know, faculty that I knew it was in front of peers that I knew, but the, the mid Atlantic, like that's a whole different ball game because it's, it's strangers. It's people that are really breaking you down and asking you like real questions. I know you guys try to ask questions that you think we might be asked at the conference, but it was a whole different ball game. You know, there's other schools there. It's, it's more competitive feeling, but when it was over, I remember there was such a high that I had of this was such a cool thing to do. I mean, that that paper is your baby you're working on it for a year you know that's your baby um and you feel very protective of it i felt very protective of it i felt very like nobody's going to tear this up i'm going to know my stuff i'm going to have an answer for everything nobody's going to mess with this um which is a, a really cool feeling and something else i wanted to touch on is when you talked about like just kind of sociology in general the thing about social and i didn't know that it had a name when i went to college i was always so interested in human interaction why people do the things that they do why they say the things that they do why are we one way in private and another way in public like i've always been so so fascinated with those kind of tropes of life and but i didn't know it had a name i didn't know what it was i was just like oh i'm interested in people like i (laughs) but i didn't know and then getting into college and finding out like oh this has a whole area of focus and study and uh, you know, the, the whole thing about it. And I feel like when I do my podcast, it's a lot of like sociology in my podcast, you know, because people talk about, oh, well, you know, I've had podcasts where people have said, oh, well, people know me as this way, but I'm really this way. Or people think I'm this way, but I'm really this. Or I did this one thing and it threw everybody off, you know, um, which reminds me of the the mid-atlantic research conference i think you know where i'm going with this i do i uh, do it is still something i talk about to this day and this is like 16 you know like by this time it's like 14 years ago now um we were at the conference and it was like the registration table and i was drinking a bottle of orange juice and i left the bottle of orange juice on the registration table and i walked away and i remember i came over and got you real quick and i was like cause check this out i'm doing a research like i'm doing a sociological experiment right now and i said i have this orange juice bottle on the table and like let's see what happens like let's and everybody kind of leaves the table and there's nobody registering but the people sitting there that are checking people in I see them start to look at the orange juice bottle, asking each other whose it is. Is it yours? Is it yours? And nobody touched it. Everybody left it alone. And I was so fascinated that, like, they clearly knew that this bottle didn't belong there, but they didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to mess with it. They just went. And I was like, wow, I'm doing, like, a research experiment right now. And then I walked up to the table and I said, Oh, do you know whose orange juice bottle this is? And they were like, no. And I picked it up. I took off the cap. I drank out of it. I was like, Oh, that's pretty good. And I walked away with it and they all looked horrified. (laughs) They looked horrified that I had done that. And it was, it's still like one of the highlights of my collegiate experience. It's one of my favorite moments ever. And the best part about it is you were so encouraging of it because, because it was a sociological experiment. Like, and it's so funny because, uh, and I'll be perfectly frank, like, I've always had a big mouth. I've always been a talker or whatever. I would not have thought or done anything like that if I hadn't met you. Um, because you made me think a different way. You made me look at things a different way and think outside of the box. And in the in a not a negative way, not in a hurtful way, but 
almost kind of wanting to mess with people to see what people do and how they react to things, never wanting to hurt anybody, but always like, let's see what happens if I do this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's still like one of my favorite moments ever, honestly. Yeah, that's one of my favorite moments too. I just remember when you did it, I'm like, what is he doing? And then you came over and told me, and I remember how people worked around that bottle of orange juice. Like they left it, they let it sit there, but they would like move themselves around it, around this bottle of orange. And nobody touched it. Nobody (laughs) touched it. And that was that was incredible for me. Um, They wouldn't move it. They would just work around it. Work around it. Bottle own that space. Like it was some like special magical bottle that they couldn't touch, and it was just one of the funniest things. And. I mean, such an, an, an inappropriate place for that to happen because it was at the, you know, the Mid-Atlantic Social Research Conference. Like, you know, so that that was a really amazing thing for me. And I remember graduating from E-Town, I, I really kind of took a lot of the things that um, I learned in your classes and stuff with me. Um, another thing that I took with me, and I don't know if you remember this, but I came into class one day, uh, your class with a bag of Funyuns. I do. And you it was like. It and Globe, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. And you like <laughs> ripped me apart for that bag of Funyuns. You were like, do you know what's in that? Do you know what you're eating right now? And I was like, Funyuns? Like what? And um, because another big thing with you when I was in school, at least was you know, uh, you know, I never heard the term aspartame before I met you. I, I never knew what that was. You know, I never thought I would, I never really thought about what I was putting in my body to be perfectly honest. And, and I was eating that bag of Funyuns and you were like, what are you, do- what is in that? Do you know what this is made? And you read off like ingredients in it. And I was like, I can't pronounce any of these words. What am I doing? Every single time I see a bag of Funyuns now, I think of you immediately. Um, so to say that you had an impact on me would be an understatement. Um, but to be perfectly frank, just above all of that, um, I remember very vividly knowing that I was going to like you as soon as I met you, because when I first heard you say like, Oh, like call me cause Dr. Cause immediately. I remember and talking to other people like Liz and, and, you know, other people in the major and stuff thinking of like, Oh, okay. She's, she's going to treat us like an adult. She's going to have expectations, but she's going to treat us like an adult. Um, and it immediately made me feel comfortable with you because it sort of dissipated that whole, well, this is a teacher and this is a student. And like we, she dictates and we, and we listen and the relationship was so much more reciprocal where like you actually talked to us. You wanted to know our thoughts, our opinions. If we had a thought or an opinion about something, you were like, well, why, how did you get there? Like, what was the path you took to get to that conclusion? Um, and I just remember, uh, like, to just be perfectly frank, I know I'm kind of tooting your horn right now, but, like, it's just true. Like, I learned a lot from you. I gained a lot from those four years of knowing you. Um, and and it was just something that really had a big impact on me. And it's something that I've carried forward with me through my life. And um, you don't know this, but when I very first started doing this podcast, I had a conversation with my wife. And she said, oh, well, like, what, what kind is it going to be? Are you going to have notes and stuff? I said, no, I'm just going to talk to people. She said, oh, okay. And I said, I kind of want it to be, and then I was writing down things of what I wanted it to be like, and I wrote your name down. To be, like totally on I wrote your name down like and I was like I I want it to feel like that I want people to feel like I'm talking to them and I'm listening to them and they're being heard and their story matters and I want people to be able to share their thoughts and feelings and how they do things and why they do things and and that a lot of that I got from you so um you know having having you on here is, is a really cool thing um for me and kind of going along with that with me pushing myself and you kind of pushing you've been involved in so many things, so many, you, you've been editor of things and you've won awards for things and stuff. What makes you continue to push, to do more, to take chances, to, to look into things differently, to be a part of different conferences and stuff like what, cause a lot of people, you know, they're happy just teaching and that's good for them. Like what makes you just want to, you know, the, what was the living learning kind of communities and like things like that? Like what makes you want to be involved so much and so much of that stuff? I mean, I think part of it is it's for my students, Um, even when I do things and not just my students, but for teaching and learning um, more broadly. Uh, Again, I my mom was an excellent educator and I observed her in the classroom. But I also when I was at Penn State, really enjoyed uh, working with the Center for Teaching Excellence there and learning more about what makes people want to learn 
And how can we make that process not just laborious, but fun? Like, so everything you're talking about, I love to have fun in the classroom. I want people to come to class not knowing what to expect on any given day. That is absolutely what we got. (laughs) (laughs) I just like some days, you know, I'll bring in a a bag of Oreos and talk about like, how do we learn to eat Oreos? I mean, we're talking about socialization. Um, I know I drive into class, you know, I, I drive about 40 minutes into school and I'm always thinking on the way in, like, what can I do to really get this message across? This year we tried playing werewolf in Discovering Society to talk about social interaction and how we socially construct reality. And I learned about it. I learned about using werewolf. We've, werewolf is like mafia for those who have Such a fun it. game. I yeah. love that game. And it's, you know, it's a commonly played game, but in the game and as the game progresses, students took on new identities. And at first they tried to do everything by the norms of our current society, right? You don't lie, you play by the rules. But then by the third or fourth round, you know, you're supposed to have two werewolves and five werewolves are raising their hand because someone's lying. Um, And so it was really interesting to, it's always fun to try new things. Like my classes are never the same. Every introduction to sociology course I teach is different because I never keep it the same. Um, I like to try new things. I like to do new things. Every class has its own personality. So I think, why do I do these extra things? Well, one thing is, um, you know, I don't, I don't drink to excess. I don't use drugs. Uh, I don't like run 10,000 miles. I like to work. So one of the things I do is I work all the time, but I really enjoy learning more about teaching and learning. And so that's why I became editor of Teaching Sociology. Um, I also had great mentors. The editors before me are people I looked up to. So I feel like I'm paying it forward. I'm always paying it forward, right? So I wouldn't be where I am had I not had Dr. Crable and Dr. Rosado and Dr. Ingrid Wan, who was an art professor at Elizabethtown. Um, if I didn't have those, those amazing people in my life to push me and see the best in me and see what I could achieve and then challenge me to get there, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting right now. So I feel like I need to pay that forward with others. And so whether that's editing a journal, I'm paying it forward because I'm now running webinars. I do monthly webinars for the journal and I'm doing a lot of mentoring in that role and I try to pay that forward as well. Um, I And I also want to give students some more opportunities. So I have editorial assistants who are undergraduate students who work for me and get to see what scholarly journal work looks like. Um, they get to, to do that as an internship or as a, a job on campus. And so I love giving those kind of opportunities to students. Um, I really enjoy watching students present at conferences for the first time. And like you said, Elizabethtown ta- has a you know, has a reputation. Yep. We always have, starting with when I was a student, you know. And so we, we've we built that reputation and that reputation means a lot to us um, and to each student that comes through the program. And just seeing the pride and being able to accomplish things that they didn't think they could accomplish. And yes, it takes extra time and it takes extra work, but I love it most of the time. I mean, there are days, right? We all have days, but I love it most of the time. I, you know, editing was tough for me initially because I have to make decision letters where I have to reject manuscripts. And that was really hard because I yeah. like revise and resubmit until you get it to where it needs to yeah. be, right? But with editing, there are sometimes manuscripts that just don't fit, right? They're not going to make it. And even then in my decision letters, I try to be, um, I try to be kind, uh, understanding what it's like to be on the, the other side of the receiving end of, of feedback that's not positive always. And so I try to be kind, but realistic and also give them directions for ways that they can improve or um, other avenues that they can take down the publishing road. So um, I like to think I'm a kind editor uh, and an affirming editor, but I mean, it's been about two years I've been in the role as editor. I was deputy editor before that for five years. Um, I just like to stay busy too. I know in some of your other podcast episodes, people talked about, you know, that they like to stay busy, but um, I like to stay busy. Like I said, I like to learn new things. Um, this has been, so I, I just turned 50 last January. This has been my year of sparkle. Uh, oh my so gosh, I, wow. Yeah, so I, I dubbed this my year of sparkle. 
Um, so I've done a lot of things that I really enjoy doing. Um, I like to do hard rock mining. So I like to mine for Herkimer diamonds. I did that a ton of times this, uh, this summer and all through the, the year. Um, at, I made some friends that own a diamond mine, a Herkimer diamond mine up in, Her in Little Falls, New York, and they've become really special friends. I actually um, bought out the mine for a day to do an adventure uh, dig with my friends. So my friends came up to Herkimer, New York, and a whole bunch of us went and mined Herkimer diamonds. And it was nice to see them being able to do something I really enjoy. It's hard work. It is hard rock, some of the hardest rock there is. And you're sledging rock and using chisels and hammers. And uh, that's what I do in my free time, right? I like to, to, to bust rock and find really sparkly, doubly terminated uh, quartz crystals called Herkimer diamonds. I, I love them. But I'm also very metaphysical. So a number of years ago, I became a Reiki practitioner. Uh, so I am a certified Reiki master teacher. And again, there's the teacher part, right? Yeah. So I, I love teaching, whether it's teaching my friends how to mine for Herkimer diamonds or whether I'm teaching someone how to enjoy some rest and relaxation through Reiki. Um, I've got horses. I like to ride my horses and take care of my horses. Um, just a lot of, I, I'm busy all the time. I'm Subaru ambassador. Uh, my one of my new hobbies is uh, disc golf. Uh, one of my colleagues and friends introduced me to that, and so uh, yeah, I stay really super busy all the time because I I I don't like a lot of downtime. I don't like to sit around and think about problems. I like to to just go out and enjoy and have fun with uh, with friends and and different things like that. But I do yeah, I take on a lot. Um, yeah. and now that I'm full professor, I'm still taking on a lot. So this myth that once you're a full professor, tenured professor, you don't do anything does not hold in my, in my case, I'm probably yeah. busier now than I've ever been. What's, what's interesting is if I heard a different person say that I would have been like, wow, you're involved in a lot. And did it, I hear you say that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. That yeah. <laughs> involved in everything that sounds about. And what I, what I like about that is your interest level and involvement like ranges like it's a big it's a lot of people are like you know i like to read and i might write and it, there's kind of like a theme but your stuff is just all <laughs> over that you just like to go you try new things you get involved with stuff and i love that like i i, I try to do that myself you know mm -hmm. before i had a podcast i had never had a podcast and i was like what right do i have to do that well i'll just try it everybody else is doing it and before i made my first film i was like i like films but why would i make a film and my wife was like well you you wrote this script and you like it and you have people that want to be so just go and do it and i was like okay i'll do it and now i have like seven films and i'm in pre-production for two more like you know it's it's cool to try things and then you discover that not only do you like it but you might be good at something you know um and and that's a really cool feeling and and speaking of good at something i have to get to this because we talked about it a little bit before we started but tell me what um what is it north american stage rally like tell me tell me what that is because I'm sure a lot of people out there are not going to have any idea what that is. And I saw this and I was very fascinated. So tell me about that. All right. So this is one of my passions. And I would like to say that, you know, I I've, I want to thank the North American, if they happen to listen to this, I'm not sure how much my worlds collide. I don't know. You said I'm involved in lots of different things. And we always, my friends and I always talk about that because when you get my friends together, yeah. they are from really different worlds. So getting, if you got all my friends together in one room, it would be just a wild party because the overlap is, is limited, but yet yeah. you can also see that all of them are very much like a family to me. Yeah. So they all comprise like a different aspect of my family. But so at first I want to thank the uh, North American Rally community for embracing the work that I do and the research project and allowing my team to come in and, and do this research that we're doing. But um, I love car culture. So um, ever since I got my license, I've driven a fast car. I think I drove an SUV for a very short period of time in my life. Uh, and that was very, it was short for a reason. I like a fast car. I just, and I don't yeah. always use it, but I enjoy uh, having one. I just, I really like that. Um, so I drive a Subaru uh, WRX uh, as my, as my daily. And um I love Subarus. I love WRX. 
I love the WRX and I ever since I saw the WRX come out I wanted one and I finally got my first one was at 2005 and um, I didn't know anything about stage rally American stage rally because it's a lesser known grassroots motorsport in the United States now it's very popular rally is very popular in in world cultures especially in Europe where the world rally championship is highly publicized it's televised incentivized, commercialized, all the eyes. Yeah. Um, but American stage rally is still very much a grassroots sport. It's been around as long as NASCAR, um, but we don't really hear about it. And it's because it's a, it's a group of you know, individuals who are racing their cars on, and their cars have to be street legal. So a rally car has to be a street legal car. Because you're going to transit. So I'm going to use a lot of words here. Again, this is sociology, right? I'm going to use a lot of words from the culture that people might not understand, but there's no other way to really explain it. So you have to transit between stages. A stage is a section of road that's closed for rally. Um, and you're going to race against the clock. So you race one at a time, about two, one to two minutes in between competitors. You race down these roads are typically dirt roads, um, so logging roads, you know, those kinds of roads, uh, back roads in the woods. And you race on a, a, you race down those roads at speeds of upwards of eighty to hundred miles an hour. Whoa! On on these roads with really sharp hairpin turns and cliffs and and rocks and ice and snow and all weather. So unlike a lot of motorsports where if it rains you don't you're done, right? They race in all weather. Nothing stops a rally. So unless the only thing that'll stop a rally is if you lose radio contact. So you're in areas that are so remote that you need ham radio operators in order to wow. uh, talk to one another. Another thing that'll stop a rally is if someone goes off and gets hurt and there's a red cross and then um, a red cross is thrown or someone's hurt. And so a rally competitor will stop and help each other uh, and so even weekend warriors or your, your, you know, your, your general person can enter. Anyone can enter a rally. You just have to have certain technical specifications on your car and safety equipment. And, um, and you can race alongside the professional drivers, which is really interesting. Wow. So um, it's, it's a really interesting sport. Um, and you need a co-driver in rally. So there's two people in the car in rally that race. You have the driver and the co-driver. Uh, the co-driver reads you notes that are done through a recognizance the day before or sometimes the morning of, depending on the rally, uh, which is called recce. And they write notes that, and the notes are abbreviated. They're, it's a whole language of its, of its own. And uh, the co-driver will read the notes because it's really hard to sight drive because you're going so fast along curves and turns. And um, one little mistake and you're gonna, you can flip the car, hit a tree. Yeah, it's called an off. Um, and uh, I found out about rally because I became what's called a Subaru ambassador. So a Subaru ambassador is kind of like a brand ambassador for Subaru. You own a Subaru, you apply to be a Subaru ambassador. And I think it was like in 2017, I really wanted to be a Subaru ambassador. I met some Subaru ambassadors at a, a rally event. I found out that there was a rally in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania. One of my friends had, a, one of my best friends had a, um, has a, a camper or like a trailer up in Wellsboro. And she's like, you know, cause I keeps, and it was actually a friend from, from E-Town. And she said, uh, I keep seeing these cars driving through the my campgrounds and they're going through the water and I think you'd really like this. And I'm like, what? And she's like, they're all Subarus. You should come up here and see this. <laughs> and so uh, the next year I went up and I met some Subaru ambassadors there. Uh, one of them was from Elizabethtown College and uh, he was a, a former student that I had known. And he's like, yeah, you should do this Subaru ambassador gig. I think you'd really like it. So, uh, again, it's like that whole feeling of cloud nine. I found my people. Like, I was at this rally, and, it, and yeah. it's, like, interesting because they, they line up their cars. And unlike NASCAR, where you can't talk to the professionals, like, you have to wait in line to get autographs, part of rally is everyone is required to bring their car to the park expose and allow people to touch it, sit in it, talk to you. 
And the first day I got there with my daughter at the time, um, we got to the rally and we saw this, the, one of the professionals cars, one of the professionals was Travis Pastrana and uh, he's really well known for some of his motorsport yeah. work and nitro circus. And, uh, so we got there and his car was pretty smashed and banged up. Right. And one of the doors was a different color because they had, he had hit a tree and they had taken earlier in the day and he had, they had taken the, the door off the regular Subaru, like the, the recce car, the everyday daily car. And they had put it on his rally car to fix it. And I was, and he was standing there and we were talking to him. Like I was talking to Travis Pastrana about yeah. how he just yeah. hit a tree. And I was like, <laughs> where can you do something like this? This place yeah. is wild. And then I, we were talking to some other drivers and one of the drivers said, like, yeah, you want to look at my co-driving book? Here's my co-driving book. And they were showing me all the notes. And they're like, do you want to co-drive for this next thing we're doing? I'm like, me? No. I don't want to. I've never. I'm, this is my first time here. I don't. And they were offering to let me sit in the co-driver's seat and go down the next thing and drive with them. And I was like, whoa. No, I don't know how to do that. But yeah. now I want to know how to do that. Uh, so I started talking to more and more people and then I, a couple, and next year I came back and I volunteered. It takes about 400 volunteers to run a rally. It is not a commercialized thing. And so, um, there's, they're all over the country. Um, and it's become very much a family for me and my research team. So after I went that first year, I decided I wanted to do research on this. I wanted to know why they, again, why, why do yeah. they do this? Um, and then I, I noticed that women were often co-drivers, but not so much drivers. So I was really curious as to as to why that was, what, what made women good co-drivers, but why didn't they often drive? And so I started talking to Rhiannon Gelsomino, who's a professional co-driver, um, and also now Travis Pastrana and Subaru's team's co-driver. And so I started talking to her first about it and said, do you think this would be a good research project? Do you think they would talk to me? Um, and she said, yeah, I think people would. And, and so I started going and, and volunteering and getting to know the rally drivers and the rally co-drivers and the uh, American Rally Association organization. And um, it's been a really fun time. Like I really, and I love this intersection between my research, my personal life. I use it in teachings. I teach about rally in my intro class for culture and methods. We talk about how I had to get involved in the sport in order for them to talk to me, right? Which is part of research methods. And so I'm able to bring and unite all my areas of interest into myself holistically. And that's what I'm really interested in in my life right now is living a holistic, authentic life that I do not separate who I am, cause the rock miner from cause the rally researcher, yeah. from cause the professor. I am cause all yeah. the time like unapologetically cause all the time yeah. uh, and I won't really separate myself anymore, which I think comes with age a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the older I get, the more I feel the same way. Um, you know, I, I'm less interested in actually keeping who I am at a, at an arm's length of people. Um, I, I speak my mind. I say what I think. I say what I feel. I say what I believe. And I've always done that to a certain extent, but now I do it much more kind of never from a place of wanting to hurt anybody. I'm not interested in being mean yeah. to people, but if I, my friends jokingly say, well, if you want an answer to a question, ask Adam, because I don't, I don't pull punches. I don't, I don't BS people like, you know, if somebody wants a real direct straight answer, you know, you can ask me and that's something that I'm proud of because I want to live as authentic of a life as I can. Um, I want to, I, I want to say that I did what I wanted to do when I said what I wanted to say and to be able to get to that point where I feel comfortable doing that now is been amazing. I've said that 35 has been the best year of my life and that's been during a pandemic and everything. And this has been the best year of my life for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. And I think that's, that's just an amazing thing to be able to be living your best life, you know, at 35, you know, is a cool thing. And I, I'm excited to see what 36 brings, you know, I'm going to turn 36 in like less than a month. And that's wild to me. Uh, because now that I'm thinking about it, when you said that you just turned 50, I was like, I think you were right around my age when I had you as a professor now. <laughs> yes. And I I'm like, know. I'm like, wait, when you said that, I was like, I kind of processed that. And I was like, wait, oh, time out. Wait, what? <laughs> that, and that's, 
that's been a really interesting thing. Um, so I want to talk, you know, we talked about like what you're interested in now and kind of the future, like, where do you, where do you see this going? Do you, do you plan on staying at E-Town? Do you want to eventually leave and do something more kind of independent on your own? Like, where do you kind of see your future going? Well, I think I think about that, you know, off and on. Um, I do still feel like there's a light still in me for teaching. So as long as that's the case and I'm still doing good work and I, yeah. I love it, then I'm going to stay. So I have no no plans to to move from E-Town right now, but I do, there are other passions that I'm interested in. I am a volunteer for Falling Water, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright structure in Mill Run, Pennsylvania. I love that. That's another aspect of my life I really enjoy and I want to do more with. Um, I enjoy my, the you know, the understanding about Frank Lloyd Wright and the Kaufman House and it is a world heritage site now, and, and the pandemic has slowed down my ability to volunteer with them, But um, so I enjoy that too. I think one thing about being a professor is that it does give me opportunities to do these other things, right? Yeah. I can't imagine, I'm not a morning person, so my class is typically, my earliest class is like 11, because I'm not a morning person. I know you are, but I am not. I, I am I, a night I owl. Am, I am a morning person. I am. I'm one of those I guess, weirdos. I guess you could say I'm a morning person, but it's more like 1 or 2 a.m. Yeah, a different kind of morning. I'm the type <laughs> where like my alarm goes off at 7 and I'm up immediately. Yeah, I'm, I'm up and awake. Um, so I think... I. I'm doing the things I want to do. Now, there are other things that I might still on a bucket list, right? Everyone's got that bucket list. I would like to write a memoir. I've got a lot to say. I think I think one thing is that people see a certain, I mean, it's, I am who I am all the time, but I don't share necessarily my shadow self on a regular basis with everybody. Yeah. Um, I don't trauma dump, let's just put it that way, a lot. But I do have a story to tell, and I would like to write the memoir. Um I am an artist, and so I'm trying to learn more about my art. I had my first uh, showing at a coffee shop, Cornerstone Coffee Shop, the January. It was like right on my birthday. I was so sick right before COVID. So right before COVID shut everything down, I was the last show at that coffee shop. And so that was really interesting. I haven't actually done art, I think, in about a year. So because when I get busy, I, I don't go and do art. And so I'm trying to get back into that again. Um, I don't, I mean, I think, I don't know. I, if I find life is an adventure, I am really just enjoying okay. the many facets of my life right now. I said it's a year of sparkle, right? So I've really enjoyed meeting other artists. I've enjoyed my time at Falling Water. I love my rally community. I have fun at E-Town. I think I just really want to enjoy my life. I've, I've done a lot. I've achieved. I've done all those things i've had the success i've had some not successes and so now i'm just if i like doing it and i enjoy the the people i'm with then i'm going to continue to do that that's exactly it that's that's how i'm living now if i'm happy with what i'm doing and the people i'm surrounding myself by then full steam ahead i'm just going to keep going and keep living um and it's it's amazing to have you on this and to talk to you <laughs> and to get and to get all of this and the personal side of you um, and, and I really, I, I just, I really greatly appreciate you doing this and kind of taking us Thank through, you. you know, your journey. I know there's a lot more to tell. Um, <laughs> but, uh, what, what I always like to do is, you know, kind of, if you've listened to my podcast, I like to, I have five questions that I ask people. Um, and so I would like to ask you those same five questions if that's Absolutely. okay. Okay. So, um, let's hop into that right away, I guess. Uh, so what is your favorite late night snack? Late night snack. Um, geez. Let's see. It, it changes, but probably not, a, not a banana. A banana is, is one of my favorite late night snacks. Not Funyuns and orange juice? <laughs> no Funyuns and orange juice. I do like ice cream before bed sometimes. There you um, go. Uh, you know, different kinds of ice cream. Uh, but a banana, because if I don't eat that banana before bed, um, I feel like I can't sleep. So I don't know if it's the potassium in the banana or the, you know, interesting that, and that helps me fall asleep or a yogurt, like okay. a, a yogurt or a banana. That's my favorite late time snack. <laughs> what is your dream vacation? 
My dream vacation is um, probably one of two things. One, it's either so I have two dream vacations. One, going to a five star, five diamond resort because I really am a kind of a hotel snob. But my other, but so that's one thing. I either really want to do that or I want to go Herkimer diamond mining, like yeah, and and find some and do like an adventure dig where heavy machinery opens the pocket for me. And I just get to take those Herkimer diamonds out nice. for the first time anyone on earth has seen them. And so those are, it's either getting really dirty, opening, you know, pockets of, of rock or super fancy, super fancy. <laughs> I love that. Um, what is something that makes you sad? Uh, something that makes me sad uh, is currently my relationship with my daughter. Um, so my daughter has bipolar one disorder and right now she's not a big part of my life. And you probably remember my daughter. Um, I remember, I remember we her well. Yeah. Super close and super tight. But uh, mental health challenges really yeah. are serious yeah. things. And so I'm sad that I can't have the relationship with her that I would really want to have. What is something that makes you happy? My friends and, and uh, family of choice. Um, all the oh, numerous people in my life, my horses. So when I say family, I mean my pets too, right? Of course, my yeah. Siamese cats, my uh, friends, and uh, my my horses. Those are the things that make me happy. I feel that hard. I'm pretty much all chosen family now. So <laughs> it's it's all about the people you want to surround yourself with. Exactly. Um, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, care less. Not care less. Like care uh, yeah. a little less. Care a little less about the house and how clean it has to be. Care a little less about what everybody thinks about you. Care a little less about being perfect and just be. Yeah. Oh, cause so good to have you on. <laughs> it's so um, good to see you. This is this has been so phenomenal. It has been personally very rewarding for me. Um, I would love to catch up with you down the road and see what's Absolutely. going on in the future. Yeah, I was going to say, stop talking about me like I'm dead. Like no, she no, was, she was. She I'm did. just. I'm like, oh no. It's just, it's amazing to me that you have always done so much and you still continue to do so much, and I just think it's incredible. And I hope that. Um, that people out there have taken something from this. Um, I hope so too. That's is, what this is all about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me, it's important. I, I try to tell people, I, I've actually had a few conversations. People have emailed me and they've reached out to me based on this podcast and they've said, you know, you know, what advice do you have about this or that? And I'm like, listen, disclaimer, I'm not here to give advice. I'm not a therapist, none of that. But uh, one of the things I've told people is don't be afraid to learn. Put your ego aside and don't be afraid to learn from the people around you. Uh, learn new things, take chances, be creative, you know, step outside of your comfort zone. Um, and, you know, have the people around you, you know, embrace that, embrace newness, embrace creativity. Um, and I think there's still this fear of people thinking, I know everything, right? Like, I, oh, you can't teach me anything. I know everything. And I think that's such a silly way to live. Um, and I think just just growing and learning and even just through doing this, you know, however long we've been doing this episode for, um, I've learned new things about you and that's been really cool. So, awesome. uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And, uh, I, I look forward to kind of what more adventures you get yourself involved with. Um, um it yeah. won't stop. <laughs> oh, I know. I know it won't stop. Um, so for everybody out there listening, if this is your first time here, welcome. If you're a returner, welcome back. And regardless of where you're coming from, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.